Last week, we mentioned screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis, and I thought I would just read a few excerpts from that. And screw tape letters is sort of a writing by C.S. Lewis as if there was a, an uncle who was a demon, and he was training his nephew. The nephew's name is Wormwood. And his name, the uncle, is Screwtape. And so as Wormwood has a patient, as he calls it, or a person under whom is his care to keep him under the powers of darkness, there are certain things that happen, and Screwtape has to sometimes admonish him, others congratulate him on how to control and keep this uh, person of his in the world and away from the enemy, which would be God. So it begins with, my dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. He goes on some more and concludes with your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, it goes on, and then the worst of worst happens. Wormwood's patient comes to know Christ. He becomes a Christian. And Screwtape writes... I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, and they are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. And then a little later he writes of ways in which the Christian can be drawn back away from the Lord uh, to a life that is not being usable by the Lord. He he writes, Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey, buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free 
lovers and servants, sons is the word that he uses. Well, there are various situations and various temptations that he will bring up, and it reminds us of what we are studying right now. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, we have made this into a little series called Knowing Your Enemy, Satan. And the reason why we name it that is because in verse 12, it says you do not struggle against flesh and blood. Yes, they may be the ones that are under the influence of the evil one. They are the fingertips that are causing you problem, but it is ultimately coming from the one who is called by Jesus, the ruler of this world. And as we take a look, then we've looked at Satan. We've looked at Satan's origin. We've looked at the titles for Satan. We've looked at Satan's fall. When Satan fell from heaven, he and a third of other angels became, they became demons and he was, they were cast out of heaven, never to be able to be saved again. We looked at the judgment that was associated with Satan. And this is very important for us to understand because when we go through spiritual warfare, we need to understand that we're on the victorious side. It will be a battle. It is not a church picnic when it comes to spiritual warfare. It is very serious. And that's why I believe Paul says in the beginning of this part, finally, brethren. So he's now getting to what I believe is one of the most serious things that Christians need to understand, and that is spiritual warfare. We also looked at the hierarchy of Satan. If you look in these verses, it will talk about a series of hierarchies. Uh, There are rulers, there are principalities, uh, there are powers of darkness, of this dark world, those on the earth and those in the heavenlies. We see this, and yet Satan is the ruler of them all. Again, we have to put on the armor of God to be able to withstand and resist their onslaught. And yet we are still encouraged when we are told in the book of 1 John, greater is he who is in you as a believer than he who is in the world, Satan. We come now to verse 13, and he's going to talk about specifically resisting Satan. We said the word stand firm is used over and over because this isn't, what we see in today's modern warfare movement of how we need to rebuke the devil, of how we need to figure out where these strongholds are and how we need to cast them out. There's none of that in Scripture. The main impetus to this most mature church is to stand firm, withstand the devil, and to resist him and his onslaughts. So we will see that once again from verse 13. But I'd like to go back and I'd like to just read the scripture and follow along with me as you hear me read. Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to begin with verse 10. Now we've covered that, but I want to just quickly mention this. It says, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Spiritual warfare is not fought in the strength of our flesh. In fact, nothing of the Christian life is done in the strength of our flesh. It's not there, but we can be and are 
strong in the Lord. Verse 11, he begins with, put on the full armor of God. And we will be talking about that in detail beginning next week. Put on the full armor of God. And by the way, we are commanded to do that. This isn't a choice. We are in the army now, the Lord's army. And this must be done if we are going to stand and not fall. Put on the full armor of God so that, for the reason that, you will be able to stand firm. That's what we're asked to do against the schemes of the devil. And that little phrase, schemes of the devil, is the Greek word methodias, and it means the methods, the stratagems. And that's really what we've been doing in this, this little series. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We may see it. It may touch us, but we have to understand where it comes from. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from Satan, the ruler of this world. And it says, talks about the hierarchy, but against the rulers. And then against the powers. Against the world forces of this darkness. This world is in darkness. Now, God is sovereign. Let me say that. So when we talk about uh, Jesus saying that, Satan is the ruler of this world. It means that now for a time he is left in charge to bring about his darkness and chaos and wickedness and evil. But God is still sovereign, so he can only do what God allows him to do. Furthermore, when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the works of the devil. So the victory is ours through Christ. Nevertheless, for reasons unto God, he has allowed Satan to be alive and well, at this point, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the verse and phrase before it, the world forces of this darkness, talk about the spiritual battle going on here, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, the spiritual battle going on there. And then verse 13, the verse we want to look at this morning Therefore, as a result of this, you must take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And, or maybe translated better, even, even having done everything to stand firm. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. There isn't a a bit of it that we don't need to hear it. But Father, as I think of the importance of this passage, we needed to hear this. We need to know what's going on in the spirit world, Lord. We need to know that Satan, who has made you his number one enemy, has made us his enemy as well. And so, Father, we need to know how to respond as believers. I pray, Father, everyone here is a believer. Otherwise, they're already in the camp of Satan. Father, teach us this morning as we go through these things, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk about resisting Satan. He includes the full armor of God. We'll hear it over and over. I want to talk about the concept of resisting the devil. Let's talk about that for a moment. And then what is the evil day when he says to resist in the evil day? And then we'll conclude with more applications of the activities of Satan, the activities of Satan in relation to the world, 
in relation to believers and in relation to us in a very, very practical sense. Now, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on to verse 13, and that is last week we also gave some examples of spiritual warfare. We gave a couple of examples, and one of them was in the book of 2 Kings with Elisha and Elisha's servant. And when an enemy was coming against Elisha himself, the servant said, there are too many. And Elisha said, there are many more that you cannot see. And he prayed that God would open up his eyes, and he did. And he see, what he saw was this angelic host that was going to now fight for Elisha if necessary. Now, that doesn't necessarily speak of angels and demons fighting in that passage. It could, be the, it could have been the case, but it does talk about this invisible spiritual warfare that's going on. And praise the Lord, we've been talking about demons and Satan, but praise the Lord, we have God's holy angels who also are warriors and fight to serve the Lord, fight and warfare to preserve the believer. The second example was in the book of Daniel. When Daniel had prayed to God and God had answered him and given him an answer through an angel, an angelic messenger. But the angelic messenger was detained for a time because other demons uh, had come against him and had delayed him. Now here is a situation where we have spiritual warfare before uh, good evil, uh, good, good angels and the evil angels, and we, we see this warfare before them. It talks about Michael coming in, and that is something that, again, that we don't see, but that is there. And then finally, the example that we gave was the spiritual warfare that will be in heaven during the tribulation. It talks about the war in heaven. It's a war, and it's between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels, which are called demons. And Michael and his angels are victorious because Satan is cast out of heaven for the second time and the final time, Satan and his angels. So we see this spiritual warfare. Now back to verse 13. After he talks about this hierarchy in verse 12, and he says, look, there's no way you're going to be able to withstand this, fight against these demons and these spiritual forces by yourself in your own strength. You have to have the armor of God. And he mentions that. And then he mentions over in all of these verses, the phrase, stand firm. That's the position that we take. We're not out there to combat Satan. We're here to stand firm and serving the Lord. And Satan is trying to get us unnerved, unseated, and devoured, and to have victory over us. Well, let's begin then when, it, when he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God. The therefore, as Bible students, you know, find out what the therefore is there for. What's it concluding? Well, it's concluding all of this going on before. This is why we need the armor of God. It's a logical conclusion. Now, we're going to talk about the armor of God next week in its specifics. But notice it says, the full armor of God. And this is the idea of complete. In other words, don't put on some of the pieces. You must put on all of it. 
And what did we say the armor of God was? Well, that's a metaphor for the godly characteristics that we must have in our life and stand firm with. We must gird our loins with truth. And so these are these godly characteristics that we are to have. And this is what makes up our armor of God. And we'll talk about that. And it's the full armor of God. If you have one piece missing, um, there's an area that Satan could come in and a weakness and could cause you to fall. I love the way it says, take up. As we've been telling in our introduction to Greek class, there are a number of imperatives in the scripture. This isn't saying, well, if you don't mind, and I don't want to offend you because so many are offended today. And as Christians, the last thing we want to do is offend one another. Well, we don't want to offend one another, but we do see that there are imperatives in the scripture. And it says, take up, you must take up. If you don't take up, the consequences are terrible, terrible. And the word for take up is the idea. It's very close to what it says in the Greek. It's picking something up and carrying it along. Take it up. And you can see the steps here. The first step is to take it up. If it's laying there in the corner, you pick it up from the corner, you take it with you, and then what do you do? Put it on. And that's what we find out going on through here. He says, put on the full armor of God. Take it up. And you get the idea that perhaps there was a Christian that didn't know it, didn't know about it. Well, now he knows. Take it up. Or perhaps there was a a Christian that didn't take it seriously, knew about it. He says, take it up, take it up, put it on. And it's in the aorist. And we describe this out. He's not asking them to put it on constantly. He's asking them to never, ever, ever take it off. Never let their guard down. Put it on, keep it on once for all. This is how important this is. And, it's, and you see all of these words that, that are synonyms for one another, they stress it very, very much. Because we struggle against principalities and powers of the invisible spiritual world of darkness, therefore, you must put this on. You may not have been accustomed to putting it on, but that's why we're going through the scriptures, and that's why the scriptures tell us to do this. We, this needs to be a part of our life just as much as anything else that we're applying to our lives in Scripture. He says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. If you don't have the armor of God on, you're not able to resist. If, if you don't have these godly characteristics as stalwarts in your life, as commitments, as being unmovable, and you let them go for a moment, that is exactly the moment that Satan is looking for. So in order to be able to resist, we have to have the armor of God on. Now, what is resist? Well, resist is very similar to stand firm. It's it's very similar to that. But it's the idea that you have to withstand so you're going to have this onslaught coming at you, but you're withstanding it. You know, you ever see those tests with vehicles where they put those 
high-powered fans on, and the, the car has to withstand all of that. The paint has to withstand all that. Sometimes people are even in front of that fan, and their, their hair is being blown, and they have to withstand it. That's what the word means, withstand. Or uh, put it another way, it could mean stand one's ground. I feel like this morning I'm preaching a message about military. That there's a lot of things in the Christian life that we have preached. We've preached for 16 years here, and we've preached through the many books of the Bible. But today and these last few weeks, we've been preaching about this seriousness. It's a, it's a little different subject now. We've got to do whatever else we do in the Christian life. We have to do this so that we're able to resist. We have to stand our ground, and we talk about standing our ground Standing our ground in culture, standing our ground in this dark, wicked world. Well, there's no way to do that if we don't have the armor of God on. This also is an aorist, and it means to do it and do it once for all. Now, we'll be doing it our entire lives, but it's the idea that you make a commitment, and that commitment stands, and you're going to stand your ground. You take your position, and it's not like you stand there for a little bit, and then you move over and take another position. You get that position and you stand in that position and we're to be in that position until the Lord takes us home. That's what the word resist means here. It means no wavering. It's an admonition to stand one's ground against the enemy without wavering or falling. The enemy is trying to get us to get away from that stand, to move from that stand or to push us over from that stand so that we fall. This is what this is about. He cannot take us out of the kingdom of the sun. When Screwtape found out that Wormwood allowed his patient to become a Christian, it was secure. That was never going to happen that he would go back into the camp. However, what he did talk about was those who made a profession and then it wasn't real or those who made a, a true profession but their Christian life, they, they, they didn't care. They, they were dry in their Christian life. They were, they were uh, unusable in their Christian life. They, they were not going forward at all. That's what Satan wants to do, and he wants to cause us to fall. Well, I'd like to look at two verses that use the same word, and it's in reference to the devil. This isn't the only place in Scripture where it tells us to resist the devil, not to go after him but to resist him. The first one is in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 7. Would you turn there? And what I find interesting about here, not only do they use the same word, but we find out different nuances. Well, what do you mean by resist? And are there other things I can do to help me in my resistance against the devil? Yes. James 4, 7 says, submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, there's a whole lot of good news in there. But the first thing is, don't try to resist the devil in your own strength. Don't try to resist until you first, first submit to God. And, of course, one act of submission would be putting on the armor of God. We'll talk about that. But it would also be, it's not like I... I'm a Christian, and I could do my own will, and I could still resist the devil. He's already got you. 
If you're doing your will and not God's will, that's the kink in your armor. We're going to try to talk about some very practical things of kinks in the armor. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the thing we want to point out here is if if you want to resist the devil, first submit to God. Submit your life to God. Submit your plans to God. And then resist him. And then it says that when we resist him, he will flee from us. Now, it tells us something here. First of all, Satan is going to try to get in wherever he can and whenever he can. But, But if he doesn't get in, it's as if he says, well, I will come back another day. I will go send my demons and I will go somewhere else and someone else and we will deal with you later. But he indeed flees. There is a time when he flees and there's a time when he comes back. But that's a promise. So it's not like uh, we think about the fact that what are we going to do? We just have this dark oppression over us all the time and there's nothing we can do. No, we do. And that's why when in the Christian life we have so much blessing. How can we have blessing when we're under such grave spiritual warfare? Because of what Christ has done and because as we walk with the Lord, submit to the Lord, don't give in to the flesh, don't give in to the devil, don't give in to the world, he will flee from us for a time. And the next one is, and I've mentioned this last couple weeks because I think this is a really a great verse and very helpful, and I keep looking at it in a little bit more detail. First Peter, turn with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And in verse 8, Peter now says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. And this is one of the things that we have to do. If we're going to resist the devil, we have to be sober about this. This is a serious thing. And we have to be alert to the schemes and to the methods and to the stratagems of Satan. We have to be on the alert. And we also have to be on the alert for others, our brothers in Christ. We have to be on the alert for them. Maybe they're going through difficult times and temptations. We need to pray for them. And after he says be on the alert, he talks about our adversary, the devil. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I I just wanted to, if if he's using the metaphor of the lion, he probably knows a little bit about the lion. And we could probably use some of those to just talk about it. First, he prowls around. So he's looking, 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 looking. But the thing about the difference between a man and a lion is a lion knows how to prowl. And he knows how to sneak. And he knows how to sneak up. Now, we try our best as men and as hunters, but it's very difficult. But with the feet that he has and the gait that he has, the way God created the lion and the tiger, they are able to prowl and sneak up. And so Satan is always sneaking up. He's sneaking. He's the father of lies. He's the father of deception. And he's always sneaking around. He's not letting you know. Now, I, I, I always wondered about this. He says he like a roaring lion. And I've often thought about this when you hear of lions or tigers that do their stalk and they get so close to the animals and they can't go any further. Right before they jump out, they roar. And I often think, boy, that's silly. That's like a hunter 
you know, sneaking up behind a tree. He's within target of his, of his deer, and he goes, surprise, and then tries to shoot. But the reason that the lion and the tiger does that in the animal world is because it creates fear in those animals. In fact, if, if a lion or tiger is roaring miles away for whatever reason to find a mate or, or whatever, the animals miles away are starting to go into a frenzy anyway. Well, when he does that, he's able to see who are the weak, who are the unwise, who are running by themselves and not with the fellowship. And so they become the target. And that's interesting too. Once an animal like that targets, puts, gets a target on one of the animals, they don't take it off. It doesn't matter if he goes through all kinds of other animals or whatever. He's locked in on that one. And if we're able to use any of those metaphors, we can say that that's what Satan will do. He will sneak up on us and he will lock, lock in on us, especially if he sees any area of weakness or where the armor of God is not put on correctly. And then it says, seeking someone to devour. Well, that's good. That's a good, that's a good way of writing that in the English, but it's an even better way to write it in the Greek. The Greek word is katapino, and it means to swallow up or gulp down. That's what a lion does. That's what a tiger does. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to swallow us up. He wants to cause us to fall and never get up again, to become inactive for the Lord because we're so preoccupied with whatever. Material things, sinful things, immoral things, whatever, whatever it takes. That's all that he cares about to devour us and to keep us from getting up. Now look at verse 9. Having talked about Satan, now look at what he says in verse 9. But resist him. That's what we're supposed to do. Again, we're not casting out demons, rebuking the devil, doing all of these things, but we're resisting him. We're standing firm in this godly character called the armor of God. We're standing firm in it. But resist him, same Greek word, and it says firm in your faith. So you see what it means to stand firm and to resist? You have to submit to God. You have to continually resist him. You have to uh, be firm in your faith and not give up. This is, this is how you resist him. It's not as if we don't know how to resist him. The scriptures are telling us. Firm in your faith. And then I think a piece of encouragement, knowing that the same experiences of suffering, suffering from Satan in all kinds of areas of life, any area that'll work, that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone. Every believer is going through this, which is one reason why we ought to pray for every believer as well as ourselves. Because they're going through spiritual warfare, whether they know it or not, whether they are at the present time or not, in a, in a, a very intense way, we ought to be praying. This is, this, this is serious now. You know, we, we think of our, our loved ones, our loved sons and daughters, when they go into the military, it is interesting how our prayer life is um, turned up a notch for them, isn't it? Especially when they go in harm's way for our freedom. We're praying for them. We ask the church to pray. Well, guess what? This is, this is just as intense when 
We send our children out into the world and, and they face the spiritual warfare heightened. Every day, every believer is out there going against the spiritual warfare. And so we've got to resist them. This is what it is that we do and we stand firm. Now, I want to look at this verse here, verse 13, because there's something interesting and it. it is somewhat debated. It says, so that you will be able to resist specifically in the evil day. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Well, it is hard to tell because he doesn't really go into any more detail. By the way, when he talks about the hierarchy of the, the demons and all of that, he doesn't go into great detail about that. He just tells us that there is a hierarchy. He doesn't tell us what the hierarchy does. I mean, we know what hierarchy is, and we know that they're, they're against God and that they're against Christ and that they're against us. And we know there's a hierarchy of generals and lesser than generals, and, they, and, and that's, this, this uh, organized thing is going on. But that's as far as we really know. But it's all right, because in the military, you're, you're on a need-to-know basis. But what we are becoming aware of is the devil's schemes, we know there's the devil's hierarchy, but now the devil's schemes, and he's trying to get us unseated from standing our ground. But what is this idea of the evil day? He doesn't write very much about it, but there have been a lot of different views uh, by many expositors, and there's three ones that come floating to the top. Uh, there's more than three. But this, this discussion, which, by the way, the word is really the day, the evil, or the day that is evil. That's, that's the expression there in the Greek. There are three prominent views. The first view is it's talking about the present evil age, that you've got to put this armor on in this present evil age, the evil day. We're in the evil days, which we certainly are. And that's a possibility of what he means. Now, some say he's talking about an end time event. And at that end time event, future to us, that's going to be the worst of all times. That's when Satan's going to let it all unleash. And that's what he's talking about. The third view is that he's talking about severe trials. Now, we're always under attack but there will be sometimes when some attack is more severe than others. And that's the third view. Well, quickly, let's just go through them then. The present evil age. So it's a general expression. We're in that now, and, and we would. Even in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, you remember back there, Paul said, making the most of your time because the days are evil. It's an evil, evil age. The days are evil, and they certainly are. And they are getting more evil, are they not, in our generation? Now, there's nothing new under the sun, but there's certainly something new to us as we see what's happening to our country and our world. So the days are evil. So we said it in a general sense. So it's at this point that although this is true, I'm not sure that this is exactly what Paul means. I don't think he's reiterating again that we live in evil days. Um, I don't think he had something um, common in view. I think he had something that was uncommon, something that is a little bit higher than that meaning. So 
I, I, I think we should check, take a look at the next few, the end time event. Now, I understand why these guys say this. The end time event would be right before the second coming of Christ. When right before Christ comes back and the big battle goes on, the battle of Armageddon, and it's the worst of the worst, and it's an onslaught of evil, and this is the evil day. So put on the armor of God. I, I get that, and that's going to happen, and that is going to be evil. But that's going to be during the tribulation, and we understand as believers we're going to be gone. Furthermore, why are we told to put on the armor of God now when we don't have to worry about the evil day until the future in which we're going to be raptured? So I, I, I just think that it's, it's a little bit missing the mark. I do think this third view is the better one, the severe trial. It's a severe trial. It's possible that Paul was referring to the evil day when severe trials are launched at the believer by Satan and his demons. So they always do this, but there could come a time when it is intensified. It could be intensified because now you're doing some teaching. It could be intensified because you made a commitment to serve the Lord and live for the Lord. It could be intensified because you want to see your family grow spiritually and you're having devotions. Be aware of there may be some more spiritual warfare. And to whatever degree it is, but it's, it's, it's launched and it's more severe. Now, some people have even suggested that this could even refer to a day when Satan isn't just leaving it up to his minions to attack you. Satan says, what was the address again? I'll see you there shortly. It's Satan himself. Now, we know that angels, though they can move quickly from location to location, but they are not omnipresent. They are not everywhere at once. Satan can't be here and over in India at the church there that's trying to have its evangelical services while the while the Buddhist temple is out there banging on its drums to disrupt it. That could be his demons, his rulers, his powers, his world forces, his spiritual forces doing it. But there could come a day when Satan will want to visit there, or Satan will want to visit here, or Satan will want to visit you. And that's a possibility. That's certainly a possibility. But the point is, it's going to be a day in which it is severe. And, and you all know that. You, you, you've probably gone through times in your lives when you think, I can't believe this. I, I, I can't take one more thing happening because there, there's nothing else that I could think that could happen to go wrong that everything has gone wrong. It could be in any area. It could be in the physical realm of just a challenge of life and things breaking down and everything going wrong, or it could be in the, in the realm of temptation. It could be in the realm of sin and sinful temptation. It could be experiencing temptation like you've never experienced it before, so you better be prepared. Could be that. Bengal wrote, this is when the evil one attacks us and his malignant host infests us. Another one writes, it is a general phrase like the day of adversity or the day of trouble or the day of battle, indicating a day that comes often. 
here's an idea you, you see in the scriptures where there is a phrase, the day of adversity. Now, sometimes the day of adversity does mean a judgment day. But there are other times when God warns his people to be ready for the day of adversity. When things are going to happen that are not necessarily good from our point of view. And he says, be ready. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, it says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So we see both will happen. The psalmist wrote, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Meaning when this onslaught, whatever it is, many times it was in battle for Daniel. And many times it was also of false accusers against Daniel. And uh, I'm sorry, David. And it's the idea that he says, may the Lord answer you when you cry out to him in the day of trouble. Could be anything. Call upon me in the day of trouble, the Lord says. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. So I believe these are written in this kind of vein. When it says in the evil day, I would think Paul, very acquainted with these things in the Old Testament, is thinking along those lines. Maybe not. Maybe it's a combination of both. But this one here seems to fit the best for me. It says, in fact, any day when the evil one comes upon us in force is the evil day and our ignorance of the time when such assault may be made is what makes it so necessary for us to be watchful. In other words, he's looking for people who aren't watching. He's looking for people who aren't alert. Probably the same people who are not alert are the same people that have a kink in the armor somewhere or a missing piece. And of course, even our Lord talked about something along this lines. And in Luke twenty-two fifty-three. He said, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. It is come. So it has come full circle in its severity as they came to arrest him. And then he would eventually be crucified. That, I believe, is the evil day. So let's read it again. Therefore, because of we're not fighting against flesh and blood, You must take up the full armor of God and keep it on so that you'll be able to to resist even in the evil day. Resist every day, but even when it all comes after you. And then the last phrase is, and having done everything to stand firm. This, This phrase is a little rough to understand in the English. And, and, so, and then verse 14, he's going to begin with stand firm, therefore. Number one, he says stand firm a lot right in here because that's what we're supposed to do. But it might be better to understand it if we translated the Greek word chi instead of and as even. So take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day even having done everything to stand firm. Then stand firm, therefore having girded your loins. So the idea is, is the completion of this thought is, look, you have to do everything that you could do to make sure you have the full armor of God on and that you're resisting. That's what you need to make sure of. That's your part in the spiritual warfare. And if you're not doing your part in the spiritual warfare, you are in a lot of 
danger, spiritual danger. So I, I think that's what that phrase is, and it has a lot to be said. I think it's our attitude towards spiritual warfare. We've got to do everything as possible. We can't just, you know, be lackadaisical about our Christian life. Now, God is in charge of it. He is sovereign. He keeps us. There's no doubt about it. But can, can he be any more emphatic of what we're to do as he keeps telling us, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. You must stand firm. And once you have done everything to stand firm, that total commitment, then guess what you do? Stand firm. And we'll pick that up at 14 in next week. Now, at this point, at the end of each of these, I've been talking about the activities of Satan. And we looked at the activities of Satan in relation to God, how God had kicked him out of heaven, him being what we believe is the most beautiful and powerful angel, became prideful because of that, sinned, and God kicked him out of heaven because he cannot fellowship with sin. And we talked about the activities of Satan in relation to Christ, especially as he tried to kill Christ at his birth. And then, of course, he even tempted Christ in the wilderness. And so we saw that. We looked at the activity of Satan in relation to the world. And one of the things is, is that you don't have to write a whole lot about that because he's got them. He's got them. So you would say, well, I'm 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 not a believer, but I'm not a Satanist. I'm not in the occult. Well, yes, you are. You may not be a practicing cultist or Satanist, but you are in his camp. And this is the idea that he's got you. And when... When Wormwood had his patient and he was an unbeliever, uh, he would try to do certain things to keep him from hearing the gospel, to keep him from coming to the enemy or coming to the realization of truth. And he was doing all these things. And this is what's happening with Satan and unbelievers. And the very fact that numerous times he's called the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, Uh, Jesus says that three times in John. We know that one of the things that he does is he deceives the nations. Not only does he deceive individually people to keep them out of heaven, but he deceives nations, and it's a a nationwide deception. You know what? I, I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it in this country. We're seeing delusion and deception going on like never before. We know specifically, though, he is blinding the eyes of unbelievers. And when you talk to someone about the gospel, and they've only got two months to live because of cancer, and they say, well, I think I'm a good enough person. Even though the Bible says this, I think I'm a good enough person to make it on my own. They are blind. They are blind. The Lord needs to open their eyes so that they come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in whose case... The God of this world, this is Paul saying it now, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That will be glory for me. The the lady sang so beautifully. There's no glory for an unbeliever now or in eternity if they never come to Christ. And 
we would also say, too, that Satan doesn't have to do a whole lot, but he does keep firing and firing up the furnace to keep the world sinning and to get them into even more sin and the the, uh, perverted sin uh, as deep as you can and then tries to get the rest of the world to accept it. And we've seen that these things happen in our lifetime. We don't have to read this in a philosophy of the world book. All we have to do is just look at recent history in the United States to see how these moral strongholds have been moved back or totally removed. It keeps the world sinning. Well, what about the believer? How does this affect the believer? Well, Satan does tempt the believer. He does cause things uh, in the believer's life. Um, But if we were to try to nail it down to three categories, I would ask you then to turn to 1 John chapter 2. Turn to 1 John chapter 2 where the scriptures organize three categories of the area in which Satan tempts us. 1 John chapter 2 verse 16. Here we see that John talks about all that is in the world having to do with our our flesh, having to do with our sinful nature. And by the way, Martin Luther said we, we battle three enemies. We battle the flesh, and you almost don't even need the next one, the world, but we battle the world, and then we battle Satan. We battle all three. But here he gives the, the three categories for all, it's verse 16, for all that is in the world, here it is, it's the lust of the flesh, number one. It's the lust of the eyes, number two. And it's the boastful pride of life. And these are not from the Father, but these are from the world. And who's the ruler of the world? Satan. And so he's going to do this. Now, what I find interesting is that we could look at Eve. When Eve fell to Satan's allurement and was tempted by him, we see these three same categories. But I think it's also interesting, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, we can also see three similar areas that he was tempted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Only he did not sin, whereas our first parents did. So with that in mind, let's turn back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Now we've already looked at this in this series a little bit in the sense that we've looked at how Satan began and began to, number one, question God. Number two, began to question his word, to question God's motives. It was all lies, and he's still doing that today, especially questioning his word. We cannot question his, his word. That's why we're so strong on it here, because it is God's word, and this is, this is, our, this is our power. This is our column and pillar of strength. But when we come to Verse 16, chapter 3. Okay, hold on, I'm sorry. Verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. Getting ahead of myself there. Verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
there this idea of good for food, that's the lust of the flesh. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like the lust of the flesh we're thinking about. You're right, but it is the lust of the flesh. Anything that having to do with the flesh that causes you to sin. Sometimes even good things can cause you to sin. Sometimes the good things are the enemies of the best things, and Satan knows that rule, and he'll use that against us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was the lust of the flesh, and Number two, that it was a delight to the eyes. There it is. There's the lust of the eyes. What we see, that helps the whole thing keep going. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. In fact, Satan had just said, God knows that the day that you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That is the pride of life. I'm going to be God. That's what Satan was his first sin, the pride. And then he said, I want to be like the Most High. And he's exactly right. He can't be the Most High, but he wants to be like the Most High. And that's what this idea is of, of you, you will be like God. And it's, it says it will make her wise, and, and, and then she ate. Now, it's interesting, as we look at this, we could see th- three of the same areas with the attempt of Satan in Christ. A little bit needing imagination, um, but we're going to see it. And it's not going to be the same exact area or intensity, but you'll see that it's of the flesh, of the eyes, and of the pride. And then when we try to apply it to our own lives, it, it may not be the exact same thing. We may not have been fasting for 40 days and he tempting us with food. It may be him tempting us with the things that we should not be involved in in this world that have to do with immorality. It could be uh, tempting us with uh, stealing, lying to make money, all of these things. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And the first temptation that was given to the Son of God by Satan, the tempter, verse 3, it begins, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, there's also another temptation going on. He is questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God, and he is questioning him and and telling him to prove it. And one of the ways is, is because he's hungry to make the stones into bread. Surely the Son of God should be able to do that. And you have the idea of the lust of the flesh here because he probably was hungry at that point. Of course, I love his answer, but he answered, said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How comes everything in the Bible ends up around the word of God? How comes every one of my sermons ends up about something elevating the word of God? Because it is about the word of God. And that's why when we preach, we preach the word of God here. We preach it expositorily, you know, verse by verse, because it's, it's, we, we have to understand it that way. And you know what? You don't want to go slow through Ephesians chapter 6. Oh, yeah, we did that in a week. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to put on the armor of God, yada, yada, yada. No way. No way. Well, here we are. So Jesus is tempted in the lust of the flesh. And it's the idea of something that the flesh is craving, whether good or bad. The flesh can crave that which is good. Food is good. Um, But there are other things that the flesh craves that are bad or wrong. 
sinful passions, sinful passions of the flesh. Um, Here in Galatians 5, he names them. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. And he begins with immorality and impurity and sensuality. Our generation is obsessed with this. And from pornography, which is sin, to then beyond pornography, acting out upon it. And you think of premarital sex. You think of sex outside of the marriage bonds, even though people are married. And then you think the crossing of genders. I mean, it has gone full bore. That is the lust of the flesh now. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. He's telling telling the the believers to flee immorality. Run away from it. Resist it. Run away from it like Joseph. It says every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. That's why there's something to the sin of immorality. That's why there's something to the sin when there is an unbiblical sexual sin that goes on. It becomes extremely difficult to break. Every other sin is outside the body, but the immoral sins are against the body. In Hebrews 13:4, it says marriage is to be held in honor among all. And I and I appreciate this, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed is a blessing given to us from God, but only in that category of marriage. Before, it's sin. During, with someone else, it's sin. After, before you're married again, it's sin. That's what the Bible says. That's what a Bible church preaches, because that's what the Bible says, and that's what a Bible church does. And you may not agree with it, but you're wrong. You're wrong. And this could be one of the areas that is a missing link, a missing part of your armor. And Satan will get you with it every time. You've got to have a full onslaught of commitment to put it on. Take it all up. Don't take it off. It's very interesting that Paul even says in talking to the very troubled Corinthians, stop depriving one another of the physical relationship within the bonds of marriage. They were wondering, well, maybe maybe we should, even though we're married, maybe we should become celibates in our marriage. Paul's like, Ugh. he says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, if that's what you're going to do, and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we even see that category in the scriptures. This is the lust of the flesh. And of course, it's not just sexual immorality. Uh, as Galatians goes on to say, it's idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the like of these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians, or rather Galatians 5. Then there's the lust of the eyes. So he, Satan used this in the Garden of Eden with the lust of the eyes, where it said that 
this fruit, the unforbidden fruit, just in one place in this big garden, and they could eat from any other fruit, but already they're hanging around the wrong place. Now, they, they hadn't sinned up to that time, but you could say, well, there's a good person about to go bad. And you know what? We could apply that to our lives too. You say, well, how do I have victory? How do I put on the armor of God? What do I do if there's a weakness? You stay away from those things. You do everything you possibly can to not give Satan an opportunity to tempt you with them. This is life and death spiritually. So the lust of the eyes, she saw it. It was a delight to the eyes. And we can see a lot of things. And we can see the beauty. And we can, we can praise God because of the beauty of things, of the world. And, and uh, you know, and even at times we may see a magnificent house or church or some of these ancient uh, buildings that are still there. We see the beauty in them. But that doesn't mean we become materialistic. That doesn't mean that that's what we have to have and we begin to covet it. So this is the idea. Now, with Jesus, in verse 8, I believe we have the same thing. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Showing him these things, the lust of the eyes. Was that going to work against Jesus? No, he was our savior and was without sin. It said, then Jesus said, go Satan, for it is written. What a, you know what? Now there's a poster for you. Maybe that could have been our theme. It is written. That's all we need to say. It is written. You know, you know the, the old cliche, got milk? Well, Let's just write, it is written. That's good enough. He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. So the idea is that he passed this test of the lust of the eyes. Now, what about us? It's the idea of the sinful passions of the eye. Yes, it could be immorality, but it could be greed. It could be the love of money. It could be materialism. Um, it could be, I want what my neighbor has, and even if I have to go steal it. Or I want what someone else has, even if I have to cheat the IRS. Um, in First Timothy chapter 6, it says, For the love of money, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil meaning that money in itself is not evil. It's how you use it, whether you use it for the Lord or use it to spend it upon yourself. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus passed this test, and we need to pass this test too. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to continue on. I want to finish this next week. There's just a little bit to finish up. I want to I want to look at the boastful pride of life. What is that? How did how was Eve tempted, and how did Satan try to tempt Jesus? And then what does that mean for us? And then I want to look at Satan's direct attacks at believers as recorded in the scriptures, and then with a number of just practical things to help us in this battle before we start putting on the armor of God. We will talk about that next week.